Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Take your Bibles this morning, Christmas Promises. I'm excited about some prophecies about the coming of Christ, and we're going to highlight those as we move into the Christmas season. So take your Bibles and turn to a very familiar passage, at least a promise that we call a messianic promise. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Folks, are you glad that God is with us? Amen. Amen. I'm going to highlight Christmas promises, especially biblical. I'll not sing, I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. I'm not going to do that. Uh, These are biblical promises that I think hold a whole whole lot more uh, really validity and strength for the Christian life, especially in terms of the coming of the Messiah. Father, we pray for your wisdom. As the word is presented today, thank you so much for this promise about the coming Christ child. We commit the time together in the word to you this morning, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love you more, to appreciate your grand eternal plan in sending your son to be uh, really the covering, the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice uh, for sin, and thank you for paying redemption's price, the great plan that was settled forever in heaven And Lord, help us to appreciate so much at this time of year, the coming of the Christ child. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to do a short series on really uh, biblical prophecy as it relates to the coming of Christ. Most of you are familiar with this verse. You've probably seen it on a Christmas card somewhere. The year was 734 B.C. when this promise came to bear. Isaiah is the prophet. King Ahaz in Judah is reigning there, and Pekah is the ruling king in uh, in Israel. And you are, of course, familiar with this little text, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. I wanted to kind of give you the context for this. Uh, A virgin shall conceive. Now the Lord is speaking to the king through his prophet Isaiah, and it's an interesting When you add the context to it, it's an interesting, very interesting setting. Let's read, beginning in verse 1, all the way through this uh, verse 14. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it. In other words, Israel's coming to fight against Judah. Israel and Syria, but they could not prevail against it. It was told the house of David, saying, Syria is in confederate with Israel or Ephraim. And, and of course, the king's heart was moved with fear, the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. What a, someone said Isaiah's got one of, the, one of the most prolific pens in terms of illustrations. And he's saying their people's heart, hearts were very fearful. Then verse 3, the Lord said unto Isaiah, go now. Meet Ahaz, the king of Judah, thou, and your son, Shurjashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, the highway of the fuller's field. Pretty specific. This is the lower pool of the Gihon Spring at that time outside of the walls of Jerusalem. 
and say unto him, Take heed, and be quiet, fear, and fear not, neither be faint-hearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria, and out of the son of Remaliah. In other words, don't be afraid, because Syria, Israel, or Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let's go up and fight with Judah, vex it, and let us make a breach or break the wall therein for us, and set a king of our own making in the midst of it, even the son Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand this counsel, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, threescore and five, shall Ephraim be broken, that it shall not be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son, Pekah of Israel. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Ahaz, saying, this again the king of Judah, to verify my promise, ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. He looks this really evil king in the eye and says, why don't you ask God for something to prove me? Ask it from the highest, uh, the depths of the sea to the highest heaven. But Ahaz said, no, I will not ask, neither will I tempt or test the Lord. And he said, the prophet, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye not weary my God also? And then came that promise. Here is the context of the promise. The Lord shall give you a sign speaking specifically to this king. I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. And then, it's not over, this prophecy, is it? Look at it. Butter and honey, or curds, and honey shall he eat, that he may, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. I will not try to parse that out for you or explain that except that if you eat uh, cheese and honey, you'll have great wisdom. No, I don't know that to be true. But uh, there, was this, there is this prophecy that continues. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, in other words, about three years, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. In other words, this prophecy includes a very local, specific prophecy about, about a person, a son, who would be born, and that before that son is three years old, both kingdoms, um, or both kingdoms that were coming together in a confederacy against Ahaz, would be destroyed, and that confederacy would be disbanded. So the question, as we look at this wonderful prophecy, a messianic prophecy about a, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, is is set in an interesting historical context. In fact. The question some scholars have about this is, did this prophecy, given some 730 years before the coming of Christ, was it, was it referring to a local boy that would be born right then in 734 or BC, or does it refer to a coming king who would become the Messiah and then be the one who would be the true title of this phrase, God with us? So the predictions are very specific in verses 15 and 16 about this, this boy that's coming. Is this an exclusive uh, prediction about a boy who's coming uh, when he's young, especially to the age of three, and 
being nurtured at home. At the time, he's two and three. Then this confederacy that was very, very real at the time, one that Ahaz was fearing, this Syrian-Israeli confederacy that was coming again. Is this a, a prediction about a local son that will be born to a, a virgin? This word in in the Hebrew for virgin has a kind of a broad meaning. It can mean, uh, it certainly does mean, a virgin of mature age, able to bear child or ch- uh, children, an unmarried lady, and certainly that has that in the context. But it also can mean one who's never known a man physically, sexually, and so there's this broad meaning here. So what is going on? Is Isaiah speaking about Jesus who's coming? Or is Isaiah talking about a, a local son that still unmarried but will be married in the next couple of years, bear a child? And the answer is there is a dual, there is a dual sense to this prophecy. And we'll see that certainly it applies to Christ, who would be the fullest expression of this coming prophet. We know that because in Matthew chapter one, this little phrase is repeated about Christ who was born of Mary who never knew a man physically, intimately, sexually, and bore a child, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and the Lord uses this phrase, there could only be one Messiah, amen? (laughs) And there was only one miraculous conception like that one. But there is the sense in which many believe, and I would be of the camp that say there's, there's a specific uh, there is a specific uh, prophecy here that has both a, uh, a real-time in 734 uh, B.C. fulfillment as well as it's a picture of the coming, the coming of the Messiah who would fulfill in a miraculous sense, not a natural sense, but in a miraculous sense, this wonderful promise here that we call a Christmas promise, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And there are many reflections, dual prophecies in the Bible that have both a present tense fulfillment as well as a long-term future fulfillment. And it's so important to realize that this is one of those. Can you think of anybody else that was a sign or a reflection of a reality yet to come in in the Bible? Can you think of any? The perfect lamb, right? would be reflected in the perfect lamb that was coming in the person of Jesus Christ. Also, we can think of Joseph, who was a type of Jesus Christ, although he was not perfect or divine. And yet we see all these reflections in the Old Testament have dual, uh, really a dual sense of meaning to us. All that to say, that's the context in which we see this. Uh, there's a There's a contemporary fulfillment of this, I believe, as well as the coming divine and supernatural fulfillment in the promise of Christ's incarnation. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1, the account of the Christmas story or a narrative, the conception of Jesus was accomplished in the womb of a young maiden who never knew a man physically or sexually. And then Matthew chapter 1, 23, reminds us of the divine nature of this wonder. Behold, this virgin Mary shall be with child and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Jesus, or Emmanuel, being which, which being interpreted as God with us. So in these years, 700 before Christ, there was a great need to know, as there is today, that God is with us. And we see this wonderful phrase or idea repeated throughout history and fulfilled in the person of 
of Jesus Christ, the supernatural fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah. So let's look today at just a couple, three thoughts about this passage that I think is important. Here's the verse, we've read it. Uh, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, so forth. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Well, let's first of all look at the desperate conditions surrounding the promise. We've read the verses together, the desperate situation surrounding this particular promise when Isaiah was ministering to Judah. The events are very interesting. There's a, first of all, as you look at chapter 7 and verse 1, there is a, a, a kind of a, a coalition of folks come. Israel had tried to come up and, and fight against its arch enemy, Judah, to the north. Couldn't do well. And so they retreated and requested Syria to the east, who is really an enemy of the people of God, to come and help Israel called out. The king Pekah of Israel called out to Syria to come and help him destroy or at least overcome Judah to the north, or excuse me, Judah to the south. And there was this, this gathering army. That's what's happening in the context, this desperately dark situation. They surrounded uh, the people and they were gathering around the, the city there in Judah and they were coming against Jerusalem to overtake it. And King Ahaz, the Bible says, his heart is so moved and the people's heart is moved with fear. So there's a fearful situation. And we see that this king, uh, Ahaz, has this very fearful response. It was told, verse 2, chapter 7, it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria is in confederate with Israel, and his heart was moved in the heart of his people as the trees of the wood were moved with wind. And there's this troubling spirit as the battle is about to be enjoined and he is so afraid and the reason he is afraid is because they've already started bumping their gums so to speak and already saying be careful we're coming and we're going to make verse 6 of chapter 7 we're going to make a breach in the walls Jerusalem we're going to set a king of our own choosing this is a Syrian a Gentile on the throne in Jerusalem even the son of Tabiel and, uh, and so there's this, already this talk about usurping the throne of Judah. And that's the context of this promise. There's a king who is desperately afraid. And the situation is very dark. And they are not only coming, the Bible says in chapter 7 and verse 4, uh, that these are smoking firebrands. You think of a stick that's on fire, waving back and forth. These men that are coming against Judah are extremely angry, upset and uh, really vengeful against the king. And they have, a, they have an evil intention, an evil counsel, the Bible says, against Judah. And uh, they're very, very upset about that. And just so you know, uh, the Lord in heaven isn't looking down at this situation and saying, okay, um, deliverance is needed, but so what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose the king of Judah. Because he's the, King Ahaz, because he is the best of the two solutions. Sometimes in our uh, choice of pol- politicians, what do we do? Well, I guess i got to choose for the best of the worst. <laughs> and we, be, we go to the polls thinking, well, well, the Lord isn't in heaven saying, well, this, there's some goodness here in the king of Judah, and there's very little goodness over there in the king of Israel. They're both my people. They represent my people, my tribes. But I guess um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I guess I'm going to, pick the king, and I'm going to support him. 
Now, I want to tell you something about how dark the days were there when this king and this promise was given. King Ahaz of Judah was an extremely evil king. 2 Kings chapter 16 gives us the backstory. He was a king, King Ahaz of Judah. Now, this promise is going to come to this king, but he's a king that, that had already adopted the idolatry of the nations around him. In fact, he had sent his own sons to the fire. Some of his own sons he had offered in the fires to Molech. This is King Ahaz. And King Ahaz, 2 Kings 16 tells us, is so afraid. It's not explicit in Isaiah, but in the backstory to this situation, this King Ahaz is so afraid of what's going to happen to him that what he does is instead of going to Syria where Israel's king has gone, he goes to Assyria. Assyria is the ascending power. And he goes to that king and he says, I want you to help me. And so the king of Assyria says, so what do you have in your hand? And what King Ahaz does is he goes to the temple treasury and he pulls pulls out all the, 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 the silver and the gold that's there and he makes a contract or a league and he pays off the king of Assyria with all the gold and treasure and silver from the temple and the tabernacle area. He pulls out all these treasures and he pays off the king of Tiglath Pileser is the long name of Assyria so that he will join. And this king does that. He decides to form a league with Judah, the nation, two nations of Judah to the south to defend itself against Israel to the north. And not only does he do that, so impressed is he with the Assyrian gods, the gods are named Asher, the main god in Assyria, that he goes over there and sees a, sees a religious, the king of Judah goes over to Damascus in that area where king of Assyria is gaining power, and he sees a religious ceremony to the god, uh, the false god Asher. He sees an altar built to this false god, and he's so impressed with it. Here's what he, this is Ahaz. Ahaz comes back home, and I'm telling you the story, so we don't have to read all the way. Ahaz comes back home to Judah, and he goes to the, the, the temple area, and he's so impressed, and he wants to impress the king of Assyria. So he takes the blueprint of this false altar to false gods, and he thinks it's so beautiful, he makes a replica of it, and he brings it to the temple area, and he sets it up in the temple area to worship this God and to make sacrifices on it. This is Ahaz. You see what God's in heaven? God's looking down at the situation where you have an evil king in Israel, right? Leading the people away into idolatry. You have an evil king in the north and in the south, Judah and in northern Israel. Both of these kings are pell-mell running away from God, setting up idolatrous practices. And God in heaven brings a promise to King Ahaz, who is just as evil, if not worse, than the king of Israel, Pekah. What are we to do? What are we to think? (laughs) And so, back to the story, he brings this altar, uh, this replica altar, sets it up. In fact, he changes the order. We've been studying this on Wednesday nights. There is a prescribed order for the furniture, seven pieces of furniture in in the tabernacle, in the temple. There's a certain plan for them. It's in the shape of a cross. 
It starts as you come in with the altar of sacrifice, and then the laver behind it. You go into the temple itself. But he's, he's rear, you go into the holy place, and you see that there is a candlestick to the left. And on the right, there's a showbread, the table of show. And right before the veil that separates from the holy place, there's the altar of incense. You get past that as the high priest, and there's that, the Ark of the Covenant. And so what this king does, Ahaz, so impressed is he with the false gods around him, that he comes and he brings this altar to, uh, back to the temple in Jerusalem, to the false god Asher, and he, he rearranges this. And he brings this up to the central place. He wants to make sacrifices on it himself. And he makes a special entrance just for the king of Assyria so that he might be welcomed at any time. That's Ahaz. That's the, con- that's the darkness of the situation we find ourselves in when this promise comes. Ahaz is not serving God. He's not loving God. And so God isn't like casting dice in heaven or saying, maybe, maybe this guy's a little better than this guy. No. There is a desperate darkness in the land. And, and then I want, to, I want you to see what's happening in heaven. Now, before we talk about Isaiah 6 for a moment, Remember that Isaiah 6, uh, that vision that Isaiah has in the, uh, of the Lord high lifted up in the, in the temple, his robe fills the temple. It's a vision that Isaiah has of the holiness of God. Before I want, I want you to see that that's the next thing's up to bat, but I want you to know something, that our situation is just as dark as that. Even though we may be in what quote-unquote Christian America, and quote-unquote Christian Israel and Christian Judah, there is a decided, intentional drift away from God, and we see it at every level in our churches, we see it in our politics, we see it in our sports. There is this national drift away from God, and we see it in our culture. It is, it is amazing, and you ask the question, why should God bring a promise to this kind of people at all? Why should God care about us at all? He should turn His back and walk away. Instead, there's a promise that comes in the darkness of a debauched culture and to two kings who really have no heart for God at all. A promise comes. Well, we get to this wonderful scene there in the tabernacle or the temple where Isaiah, who was the prophet on duty at the time, ministering to these people, reminding about the coming judgment. Well, God, God in heaven has a whole different perspective. And, you know, I have long talked to Christians who, who are so caught up in, in the, polit- the politics of the day, and certainly this is one of those days where we are talking about who to vote for and why, and, and often we're trying to decide between the lesser of two evils. I think we ought to vote wisely and we ought to vote. But did you know that the answer to life's problems will not come from Washington? And so, as these two men are worried about who's going to take my throne and who's going to win the battle and what's going to happen down here, and everybody in the nation is worried about the political winds that are blowing and shifting, God in heaven is on his throne. And he is not worried. I. I think we ought to enjoin uh, and do the civil thing and, 
and write our senator. I have done that this past week because there's this bill, and I'm on a rabbit trail a little bit about it's called Respect for Marriage. It's misnamed. It should be Disrespect for Marriage because it is this opening uh, to a legal footing and standing for homosexual couples to be known with all the rights that come with a married couple, heterosexual couple. And it's, it's just wrong-headed. It's not right. It's not biblically right. And who is the person that's going to stand up and say, no, it's not right historically, traditionally? Uh, history is against it. There's never been a history of a, of a civilization given to this kind of a homosexuality that has survived at all. It is, it is societal suicide to redefine marriage. It is biblically wrong. God created man for woman. It's biologically uh, nonsensical. It's impossible for two of the same gender to produce children. And yet, our, I, wrote the, I wrote the note, as many of you did, thank you, to our senators. And I said, listen, Mr. Ossoff and, and uh, Mr. Reverend, I said, listen, if you are a man of the cloth or a man of the word as you profess to be, there is a higher authority in your life, and it's not public opinion. It is what God said. And this is just wrong-headed. Vote no, vote for traditional marriage. To protect it, to protect America and our society, vote no to this silliness. And he wrote back and said, oh, I think it's just so wrong to disenfranchise any sector of our society. You see where we are? We're not far removed from where Ahaz was. Our thinking is let's fall in love with what's happening in the cultures around us. Let's bring in their gods. Let's set them up in our temples. <laughs> and let's murder babies just like Ahaz murdered. 60 million plus now and counting in our country are we better than they? Oh, we would never put our babies into the hot, glowing hot hands of, an, of a graven image to mold it. Oh, but instead, we will claim, rather, because of convenience, we don't want the responsibility of bearing children so we can terminate. It's our right to terminate the life of a baby in the womb. See, sometimes you read Scripture and you think, we're so much better and God has an onus to bless us, but we're right where they are. We're no better than they. And so here's what God is doing in heaven. Here is the deadness that's predicted. When, even before, this, this is a few years before this battle, or this battle takes place. And we see in chapter 6, the, king, the year that King Uzziah died, a king or two before this situation, that God has this encounter with Isaiah and of course, you remember it well, chapter 6, he, he sees in vision this uh, beautiful scene of the Lord, His robe filling the temple, and, and there's this cherubim crying out three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's a different setting in heaven than on earth, and, and you see that there's a, a voice that cries out, and the house is filled with this vapor, this, or excuse me, the smoke that mitigates the the face-to-face -face scene with God Himself and Isaiah, and Isaiah can do nothing more than to cry out, Woe is me, I'm undone. The preacher is the problem. And he cries out for forgiveness, and God takes a coal from the altar, touches his lips, and cleanses him. And Isaiah says, Not only am I in a place of wicked departure from God, but my, my nation is. 
And here's what God does. And and friend, i got to tell you something. Here's the answer. Throughout history, throughout history, the answer is always God calling for ambassadors to go for Him. Isn't it amazing? God surrounded by angels, cherubim. God Himself says, who will go for us? It's as if God is in some way deficient. He's not, but He's just chosen to provide the answer for a darkened culture in the, in the person of somebody with a calling from God who'll say, I will go. Friend, that's you. And God is looking at you saying, here's the answer. It is not found in politics. It's found in believers who will say, pick me. I, I, I'm sure Isaiah must have looked around and said, who else is in the room? No, Lord, here am I. Choose me. What a humbling thing it is that God who could bypass the, the, the human modality or the human instrument says, I want someone to go. God has been recruiting, always recruiting, recruiting people to stand up for Him. And that's the answer. The church is the answer. You're the answer. And Isaiah realized he's such a minority, but God is saying, I want you to go. And what does the text say in Isaiah chapter 6? Look at it there. It's right before you. He says, I want you to go and, and, and preach to a people who will what? They're dead. <laughs> they, they will not hear. They will not listen. They will not heed. And what a thrilling prospect that is. If you're a preacher boy today or if you're called into the ministry, here's your calling. I want you to go and preach to people who will not. There's a mystery here, isn't there? I want you to go and give your life to proclaiming the only word that has hope and the only word that changes. I want you to go. I don't expect you're going to fill churches, and I don't expect you're going to have multitudes come to your ministry. In fact, what does he say? I want you to make the heart of this people heavy, their ears heavy, shut their eyes. (laughs) Preacher, we know about that. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. What a calling. Go and preach to those who are dead, spiritually unresponsive. And Isaiah asked what many preachers ask at the prospect of preaching to the dead. He answered, how long, Lord, must I do this? And I think it's just really, really interesting. How long? I think every, every pastor is a good pastor, understands that he must not preach for results necessarily in the pew, but for the glory of God. But there are times when in the ministry we say, Lord, isn't there some sort of reward now? It's a mystery, isn't it? We're to call and, 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 and to reach out and to call men to repentance, even though they're not listening. It's what I call the mystery of God's mercy, the conundrum of God's compassion, the foolishness of preaching. Go preach, but they will not hear you. Go preach, but they will nod, but they will nod in sleep. They will not understand. They have no heart or appetite for the things of the Lord. That's your calling, Isaiah, but I want you to take it and go. They will close their ears, their hearts, their eyes. 
They will not believe, and the question is, so Lord, how long? Why bother? Why go at all? Isaiah's already volunteered. He can't take that back. How long? And the answer is found in verses 11 and 12. Until the cities are wasted without inhabitant, till the houses are desolate, the land be desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. That's how long. Summarize that for me. We're trying to call young men into the ministry. Summarize that. How long must I preach the gospel? Must I approach people who don't care? Must I preach to empty rooms? Must I cry out to folks that don't care? How long, Lord? Isaiah is wondering, and here's what God says, I want you to keep on doing this until every house is desolate, the land is forsaken, and there's no more people or opportunity to hear. Why does God do that? Why does God do that? It's because He has a heart of mercy. He has a heart of mercy for people. And you know what? It's the mystery of God's mercy. How long? And God is asking us, do it until there's no more breath left in you, Isaiah. Do it until there's no person to preach to. Do it because my heart is to give every man as much opportunity as possible. How long? Until they've all forsaken me. That's fascinating. And you have to ask Noah and Elijah and Isaiah, Peter, James, Paul, Silas, ask Stephen, Timothy, ask Christ himself, who looked at his disciples and everybody's going away, says, will you leave me also? The answer is there is a heart in heaven. This is what's going on. God in heaven, while things are falling apart on earth, God is seeking, recruiting those who will be faithful to his word and preaching uh, the gospel as long as they can. We are so in love, aren't we, with flashy, big results. And I'm glad that we have a God in heaven that's just called us to be faithful and let him take care of this. How long? Well, the Christmas promise comes in a time of great darkness and deadness, when foes were rising and fears assailing. Worship was false and alliances failing. God was forsaken and prophets ignored. Heaven was open and a voice implored, who will go for us? Even though they will not listen, go and hasten, preach and chasten. Heaven's plan cannot be threatened. Though on earth it is forsaken, the King still lives and shall forever. So go and preach, though no one listens. The king still reigns and shall forever. So the concern in heaven is not for a political solution. It's not in Judah. It's not in Israel. It is in a person who is willing to be faithful with the word. And the Spirit spoke to, uh, to Isaiah, I want you to just stand. And in the midst of this context comes the promise. Not, it's not peace on earth, good, goodwill to men. No, in fact, it was... There's trouble on earth and bad will between men, but here came, here came the answer, and it's found again as we close in this wonderful sign from the Lord. The prevailing darkness, the predicted deadness, and then the prophesied deliverance. And I love this. The deliverance provided in the, promised, in the promise found in Isaiah, a prophecy begins to take shape. And here's how it does. Here's how it comes together. Isaiah is told by the Lord, go meet the king. Where? Down at the end of the channel in the lower pool, where the king is, is walking around wondering how he's going to preserve the water, 
when he's besieged or beset by the armies. Go down there and meet the king Ahaz because he's worried, he's fretful. Seems like all is lost. Go there. Go now and take your son. Why? The son is listed for us. Verse 3, then said the Lord to Isaiah, Go, meet Ahaz, thou and Shirjashabub. <laughs> Something like that. Shirjashub, there it is, thy son, at the end of the conduit upper pool. Why did he take his son with him, you reckon? Well, his name is significant. No trivial detail in the Bible. God said, take your son. His name means what? His name means a remnant shall return. That was the promise of God in verse 13 of chapter 6. There will be a remnant preserved, always will be, because of my covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, to David. So Isaiah meets the king. He's fretful, worried. And then the son standing beside Isaiah. Now, by, by the way, Isaiah and Ahaz aren't on great terms. Isaiah keeps on prophesying trouble for their sinfulness. So Isaiah doesn't have a great relationship with this king. But he meets him there, faithful to the Lord. And uh, he begins to say, listen, be quiet. Look at the verse, therefore, uh, there in your text, in chapter 7 and uh, verse 4. Take heed, be careful, be quiet, fear not, don't be faint-hearted. For these two tales, these smoking firebrands, don't be worried a bit about the anger of Rezin with Syria and the son of Remaliah, because these men will not prevail against you. It shall not stand, verse 7. Their counsel shall not come to pass. And then, uh, then he says something in 65 years. You're going to see something that both of these kings, both of these kingdoms uh, will begin, this coalition uh, will be will be broken in a couple years, and in 65 years, Israel will be no more. And it was true as you look at the historical context. They were destroyed, began to be destroyed, Israel was, in 722 and all the way down to this period of time that's spoken of here, until finally they were so decimated and so dispersed among the people that the tribes, the ten tribes of Israel, God knows where they are, but we don't at all. And this prophecy came true. And then he says this, um, this wonderful promise that their counsel will not stand. There will be a, a, a son born. And look, look at this wonderful little challenge from the Lord. I think this is important. Verse 10 says, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying this. Um, in fact, verse 9 says, The head of Abram is Samaria, and so forth. And he says, to, he says to King Ahaz, If you don't believe this prophecy, you will not be established. And it's a... It's a great thing. In other words, he's saying, if you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all, Ahaz. You have no faith, and that's why you're so afraid. There's been a promise. I'm going to establish the house of David. I've promised that, and so I'm going to keep my covenant, not because of you, but in spite of you. And then he looks, looks this king right in the eye, verse 10, and says this, to verify my promise, Ahaz, you can ask me anything. You're, you're so in love with the kings of Assyria and Syria and all the false gods around you, but you can ask me anything. Ask me anything from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell. You can ask me anything, Ahaz, and to verify my promise, I'll do it. And Ahaz, looking very pious, says, oh, no, I never try that. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, verse 12, neither will I test the Lord. The Lord is asking, 
Why not test me? You've tested and proven and asked for help from every other God. And he said, hear ye now the house of David. Is it a small thing? You're, you're wearying your men by the policy, your nation by your policies and practices. But will you weary me as well? He said, I'm basically, I'm sick and tired <laughs> of your spirit, your godlessness, your secular spirit. Therefore, now we, here's this wonderful, let's get to the end of this. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. You, Ahaz. Behold, a maiden, a young unmarried woman will marry and have a son. We don't know uh, who, uh, who bore this. Some people, it was Isaiah had a son in chapter 8. We know that, but it isn't him because Isaiah's wife has already, of course, been married and had children, so it can't be her. Could it be one of the wives of the king? We don't know who it is, but we know this. There is a local, there is a local fulfillment to this because in three years, this whole confederacy had blown up and gone away and been reestablished. But God is speaking to us who are living in dark times, and He's speaking to all of us in prospect about that supernatural birth that will occur when Jesus comes. And here's a wonderful promise for all of us who need hope in a dark time. Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give a sign. Behold, and this was the very thing that was spoken of when Mary bore her son. Bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God is with us, and what a blessing it was when the heavens blew up with the angel light, and we heard that chorus, or at least those angels speaking, for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The promise is fulfilled. Emmanuel's here is not only God attending us, but now God is among us. He's with us in the form of that little baby, born to a virgin girl who never knew a man before this birth occurred. What a glorious birth it was, and that's the sense and the context for this wonderful promise. It was given to an evil king to bring hope to a, a king who had lost all hope. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. <laughs>